Man is a nuisance. He eats up his food supplies in the forest, then migrates to our green belts and ravages our crops. The sooner he is exterminated, the better. Folks, welcome to the Man Cave Movie Review, the podcast that reviews the good, the bad, and the ugly of movies for men. This is episode 94, and today we're going to be talking about Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes. This great and fantastic film stars Charlton Heston, Roddy McDowell, and Kim Hunter. I am your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me is my very good and dear friend, Mark. You bloody baboon, you cut out his brain. Slover. You know, Steve, if I was going to cast us podcasters... In roles in this movie, I'd cast you as Taylor, Charlton Heston's character. Strong, virile, tough, a man's man. I'd cast Ken as Dr. Zayas, thoughtful, conniving, a lawyer at heart. I'd cast myself as Roddy McDowell, and then I'd cast Jeff as Nova. Because we wouldn't have to hear him at all. (laughs) Wow. That's just me. You going to shoot his alligator suit or alligator suitcase too? <laughs> nice. All right. Well, well done. Wait a minute. Hold on. So I'm stuck with Muncie is my. Oh man. That's, that's <laughs> yes. You just figured that. <laughs> I ain't playing bitch here. All right. <laughs> get in the back. Get in the back of the horse. Yeah. Get in the back of the horse. Oh gosh. I gotta decide if I'm leaving that in or not. <clears throat> All right. Also joining us is our other very good and dear friend Ken. Take your stinking paws off my vanilla vodka and diet coke, Rony. Well, one thing I learned about this movie is, you know, when you're going through life, I think everybody's met a few real jerk asses, guys that just bug you, they rub you raw, they just you know, just don't get along with them. And now I know where they come from. Fort Wayne, Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! We'll, we'll have to we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit because I totally forgot about that part. So cool, nice. Um, all right, and last and certainly not least, hailing from <laughs> from from his Fort Wayne, in- Indiana. Hailing from his igloo, <laughs> our very good and dear friend. <laughs> yeah. Has anybody seen my loincloth? Muncie. <laughs> God. Um, um, Are you okay there? I, I don't know. Um, um, you know, you're right. I have always known about Mark. From the evidence, I believe his wisdom must walk hand in hand with his idiocy. His emotions must rule his brain. <laughs> he must be a warlike creature who gives battle to everything around him, even himself. Indeed, it does. Oh, God. Hey, give me a gun and let me show you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't shoot yourself. Yeah. I got a lime shovel here on the back of my horse. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Mark more as like the nephew than anything else. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Wow. 
Well, we'll talk about it a little bit, but when you watch this movie, did you notice that there was a lot of uh, uh, Roman references, or I should say Roman names? Yeah, Latinate yeah. names. Yeah. yeah, very much well, Latin names. Well, yeah, and there was the uh, the Roman theater that they had set up that was oh, yeah. more used for stair steps than anything else, Yeah, uh, an escape route. Yeah, yeah. Yep. There, there was a lot of Roman influence, but you got the sense that they um, – you know, they were an educated sort and going back to the romantics in a sense. Right. Right. Uh, okay, folks, for those of you who, I don't know, maybe were born last year. I, I can't imagine any of our listeners have probably never seen this movie. It is probably one of the most, uh, iconic sci-fi movies. I think in terms of just, just being such a groundbreaking type of movie. Uh, it was made in 1968. And as I said, stars Charlton Heston and Roddy McDowell, Kim Hunter. Uh, there's a few other people. And Jeff, that absolutely gorgeous woman that played Nova, her name was Linda Harrison. Gorgeous. I mean, just, um, wow. Uh, Did you know the backstory on how she got the role? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that part. <laughs> backstory is an interesting term. Ken. <laughs> She got it by being on her back. Casting room couch. <laughs> uh, moving on, folks. Uh, <laughs> good Lord. This <laughs> All right. You know what? Who, who's got the penny now? <laughs> God almighty. Um, I got a plaque that I've got, and it's going to have some honorary names below it. <laughs> penny of the rail for each week. Employee of the week. <laughs> Penny of the week. Penny of the, re- penny penny of the, of week. the week. Penny of the week. And this week's Penny of the Week goes to, in the first 20 minutes, Mark Slover. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to thank the Academy. <laughs> yeah, we should. That, that's going to be the new one. We should actually have a vote. Who won Penny of the Week? Uh, uh, okay, so anyway, folks, this is uh, Planet of the Apes. This is the original one. Uh, like I said, 1968. And... For those of you who either have never seen this and where in the hell have you been, or for those of you who are just seen it, you know, back when I did in 1978 and forgot about it, uh, an astronaut crew crash lands on a planet in the distant future where intelligent talking apes are the dominant species and humans are the oppressed and enslaved. I'm gonna, I'm just going to throw out there for discussion, guys. I remember seeing this, obviously not in 1968 because I was a year old. I remember seeing it as a, a much younger kid, probably in the 70s. I wasn't quite my teenage years yet. I was probably, I don't know, I might have been 9 or 10 years old. And I mentioned this to Jeff offline. This movie actually kind of creeped me out as a kid. And, and I can't tell you why. I don't know. I think it was just the idea of gorillas and apes, you know, just pushing people around. It really did kind of creep me out. But, I, again, this is one of those, I think, one of the most iconic sci-fi movies that are out there. And especially for the time it was made, I thought it was pretty groundbreaking. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I watched it again last night and a couple things that really jumped out at me about this movie is just how well it holds up. You know, a lot of movies made in the sixties and seventies that are future or near future. They, they don't look good. They, age badly whether it's the tech whether it's the styles whether it's the special effects whether it's the acting or the cinematography this movie you know to this day still holds up and 
I think obviously a lot of it is just how spare it is. They they kept things minimal. They didn't try and overdo it with ray gun technology or all the other stuff that was starting to come out with bad sci-fi. And the focus is really about the story about, you know, a stranger in a strange land. I was reading the trivia and this was originally, you know, it's based off a Pierre Boulle book, which it's nothing like the book. I tried to read that in high school and gave up. And it's based off an initial script by Rod Serling. And if you think about it, you know, this is basically a long Twilight Zone episode. You stole my reference. Oh, but it's so well done because you have the right actors with a very straightforward script with an elegant twist and uh, an incredible makeup effects. One of the things that just jumps out at me, and I'll let Jeff talk about the cinematography, is the atonal music in this. And I think that's one of the things that gives you the willies in this movie, especially in the opening 20, 30 minutes. That music just sets the tone for just how strange and alien this world is that you're on and and where you where do you, where are you versus where you really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think this movie is very groundbreaking because it it juxtaposes a lot of social issues without being preachy, uh, a lot of perception issues. Um, you really have one of the early, I think, safe to say, early anti-heroes. Taylor is not someone you know. He's not a hero in the sense of what Hollywood was cranking out, and he's not necessarily a likable guy, but you understand his motivation. So I think it, it just it does a lot of things, and it does them very well, and it does them in a style that's very clean, lean, elegant, and simple. It stays with the story, uh, and it provides the actors a great vehicle to take science fiction and elevate it to something that we all can agree is probably an American film classic. Can't agree more. Ken, what do you think? Well, I'm going to say that uh, I'm you know, being the older one here. I I can remember not seeing this in the theater, but being in a theater where it was playing, having you know the posters outside, and it had a lot of buzz. I mean, it was seen back in that time as you know, this is you know everything that Mark just said. This is like a groundbreaking movie. Great, you know, great acting, great script, you know, different world. Uh, it hadn't been anything really like it. Uh, it was, you know. And, you know, when you think about it in, in terms of 60s sci-fi, and to put this into context, you know, there wasn't much of this quality out there. Uh, I didn't see it until I was probably in high school. And I'll agree with you in that it was it was a creepy movie. I, I, it, it did creep me out. Uh, it spawned, you know, I think four or five sequels. Mostly went downhill from there, but nonetheless, they, they kept cranking them out all, all through my high school years. Uh but I'm going to have to disagree slightly with Mark. Uh, watching it now, because I haven't seen this movie for shoot, probably 20 years. I don't. I, I suspect there's a lot of our listeners that have never seen it because I don't see it on cable or, you know, you have to go look for it. You have to go intentionally get it. It doesn't just sort of pop out on TV. So if you haven't been seeking it out, you won't see it. I suspect more people listening to this have seen the you know the Marky Mark and the Monkey Bunch remake one from a few years ago. <laughs> Monkey Bunch, nice cow. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, having said that, l- looking at it now, it is it is a Twilight Zone episode, a big budget Twilight Zone episode with Star Trek original series quality sets and props. Uh, I I was less impressed watching it now with you know my my you know perspective of years. I it was you know I'm not saying the story's bad. I'm just saying it to me it looked kind of cheesy and fakey. There's a lot of plot holes in it, in my opinion. And, you know, they're trying to put in social commentary, but it's as subtle as an anvil to the head. I mean, it's just, I don't know. In its day, that all was great, and it was un- unprecedented, and everybody loved it, and they just they couldn't get enough of it. But uh, I'm not sitting here saying I don't like it. I enjoy watching it. It's got iconic lines. Uh, I mean, it's, it's permeated into pop culture. But it it's essentially a, a TV show with a little bit bigger budget. Okay. And, you know, what we're going to talk about a little bit about the social commentary uh, uh, later on, but um, I want to hear what Jeff has to say, his opening thoughts. Um, it's, it's kind of a mixed mash of what you guys have all been saying. Um, I, you know, I saw this as a, as a kid, too, way – after it had been released, probably 10, 15 years after it was released. And I experienced the same thing, you, uh, at least um, you did, Steve, as far as the creep factor, because you are, you're, you're being asked to look at the, to relate to the, um, to the apes as opposed to relating to the humans. And when you see how the, you know, how the humans are being viewed and treated and realizing that, that, well, that's you, and how would you like being treated like that? I mean, it really caused an internal struggle between you and um, and your well, between yourself and how maybe you maybe you handle yourself in the world, or maybe how we as a society are doing things. Um, I, I agree with Ken that this. To me, this show was a little bit preachy. It was putting those social issues right up front and center. Um, I mean, it, as soon as they get out of the ship and get on land, um, you know, Taylor is, you know, talking about, you know, all the ills of mankind and this is their chance to, you know, do things right and blah, blah, blah. And you see that through, through, throughout the rest of the movie. I understand Ken's point that he doesn't think that it holds up over time. But when I'm trying to view this, I am trying to view it from the standpoint of you know, how groundbreaking it was in 1968. You know, and I remember when I watched it in the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, the, the makeup and the costumes were, you know, were, were, were phenomenal. And, and I watched it the other day, and I, and I still think that – they're, it's just impressive to think, wow, 1968. So we're we're talking almost 50 years ago. That this is what you know they were able to crank out. Is the story tight? No, but I thought it flowed pretty well. There is a cheapness to it that if we look at it now, and and it might have been a cheapness then. I mean, there there is obviously just a lot of uh, stage sets that are that are going on. But you know, I I think the outdoor scenes are done very well. I mean, they, they made a very, 
livable community. But one thing I kept trying to wrap my mind around is you had this advanced civilization, but it seemed to be very small. And it really doesn't talk about anything other than this kind of this this very diverse group in this very small setting, which did seem to just just be awkward at best. But what Mark said, and the thing that you you noticed almost immediately in the movie is the music. You you will never, and I have never heard anything even close to this type of music, and and it, it was intentional and purposeful, and it did set the tone throughout the movie. And at times, I mean, Mark said it was more you you know it was more in the first twenty minutes, but I I had to notice later on in the movie that it wasn't just the first twenty minutes. I mean that. It, you, it eventually becomes part of the movie, and you get – at least I got drawn into the movie to the point of not noticing the music until the end when I, I kind of made myself aware that the music is still there. And it's, 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 it is part of the movie that has um, intertwined itself that you don't necessarily notice it, but it's, it's setting that mood, and it is still there. And as, if you took it out of context, it's horrible. But if you put mm-hmm. it in context, it works in a bizarre way, and I can't explain it, but it does work. Okay, now you guys know who did the music for this, right? Jerry mm-hmm. Goldsmith. Yeah. This is like some of his very early stuff, and it's it's very good, and, and I can't agree with you more. I, we're kind of jumping ahead. We're talking about soundtrack, but you're absolutely right. If you listen to this music, it's not anything you're ever going to put on your iPod, but for the movie. I mean, it is the, it is the perfect mood music. Throughout the whole thing, you can't imagine anything else for this. It's like Jaws. It's, it's uncomfortable. Like, yes, it keeps you squirming. Yes, absolutely. Particularly uh, with the imagery that's associated mm-hmm. with it. Right, and I think that's something that I guess we could talk about a little bit about the plot. And this obviously was one of those movies at the time was I think trying to bring across that big social commentary. And I think what they were trying to do was show a society that was fairly advanced, I guess, by our standards, maybe mid-20th century. Not even, well, I shouldn't even say mid. I'd say early 20th century, you know, maybe 1920s, if that. Because it's like they had firearms, explosives. They didn't have electronics, but they had, you know, horse and buggies. It was pretty much, you know, World War One level, I would say. But it was very theocratic. Because that was a big part of this whole thing where the science minister was also the, what, the, the, the keeper of the, uh, the Bible or whatever it was that they had. They had their prophet who, it, w- it was a very theocratic type of society, in other words. So it, it seemed like it was, they were trying to bring that across as that, I don't know, I'm, I, I, I mean, help me out. You know where I'm going with this, or don't you? Yeah. It was like the 20s. You don't question the religion. You know, the religion is the science. Well, it's, it's Hollywood's been, you know, there's people today, you know, not to make it all political, people today, you know, talk about how Hollywood has an agenda and they have an, a world image and everything. They promote their image. And people make out like, well, that's just something that they've recently started doing. It's like, no, I mean, they've always had this for a long time. I mean, this is almost 50 years ago. And that is a thing they're doing. They're trying to say, you know, basically it's a, 60s counterculture sort of attitude of like you know the man is keeping us down and using religion and all to uh be the opiate of the masses and we've got to rise up to me when i'm talking about lack of subtlety i mean that that i forget the guy's the the character's name but the 
the young apprentice ape that's oh, you know, Lucius. He's like, you might as well just you know put a tie dye T shirt and have a walk around <laughs> saying "dude" all day. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, I get, I get the idea. Yeah, yeah, you know, the man is keeping the youth down. Yeah, we get that. Move on. That's me again. It just it bugged me. It didn't. Uh, it, now again, it in its day, I'm sure it was like, yeah, right on. But like, it's I think that's it. it. When you look at it from its standpoint of 1968, this kind of statement that was being made was not common. No, no, it's it, it, it's it, it's, old, it's, it's the it's same as if you're watching Billy Jack today, right? <laughs> Right. It's old and it's a trope now because it, they've pounded sand through that hole. And I think that's the thing we need to tell our viewers. Yeah, our don't, don't get the idea I'm saying don't watch it. It's oh, a no, good no, no. movie. But it stuff like that bugs me because it just – when you right. try to – when people are making a movie and they try to – and they're going like, we need to put all sorts of social commentary in it. What they're doing is they're saying, we're going to preach about what bothers me today. Right. And then 10, 20 years from now, you're going, Really? He even did that thing towards the end where he's he kind of you know slapped Lucius on the shoulder and said you know remember don't trust anybody over thirty. Right. It's like good lord, I mean that I mean that's before my time and I know what it means. So I mean you're right, but I think the thing of it is, Ken, is that we've been exposed to that since 1968. That kind of social commentary throughout movies. This might have been one of the first ones, at least one of the most overt ones, I should say. Because I think there was a lot of social commentary, especially even during the fifties. You know, especially with all the monster movies during the fifties. I mean, the whole the whole Godzilla thing got Absolutely. started got started because of the bomb. It's like, right. oh, the bomb is going to create you know Godzilla and Gamera and all these other crazy things. So I mean, there was that social commentary that was there, and this just kind of fed on it. So yeah, from nineteen sixty eight till now, it's like you know, for us, seen it, done it, we're not impressed, but. I think that was the thing. And all I wanted to do, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time about this, but I just wanted to bring it up because, I mean, I think there's probably books that have been written about what this movie's really trying to get across. And like I said, it's, for anybody who's like our age, like you said, Ken, it's as subtle as a, you know, hammer on an anvil. It's, it's not, you don't have to dig too deep. You could see it right in front of your face. Um, you know, to the point where that entire hearing that they had was just reminiscent of the Spanish Inquisition. And nobody expects Nobody that. expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> on the, I on thought the, it was more like the Scopes monkey trial. That was just me. <laughs> okay, well, they, well, see, it takes Ken to bring up the Scopes monkey trial. But no, excellent point. Because they did. They talk about that whole thing. It was, it was like this whole reverse evolution. It's like, you know, we didn't spring from the ape. The ape sprang from the man, and that was heresy. And and you're right, Ken, that was. That's pretty much what it was. It was a Scopes Monkey trial. So, and again, that's the whole social commentary. And, folks, you gotta, if you haven't seen the movie, which, like I said, I, I would be shocked, shocked that none of our listeners have seen this because, again, it's one of the most iconic sci-fi movies out there, even as old as it is. Well, and let me jump in real quick, and I'm not sure. defending the social commentary, but I agree with you in the sense of in 1968, this wasn't as overt as we view it today. Right. It is a vehicle, and I can overlook a lot of it, and in some respects, I think it's necessary for the story to move forward. Otherwise, 
you get Marky Mark and the gorilla, the grape ape bunch, which was just a gigantic fucking, pardon my language, disaster of a movie because there was no plot. I remember we went to go see. Yes, we did. We did. And I remember walking out and I'm going, I don't remember how bad. I don't remember why it was bad. I just remember it was bad. Because I I think my first words are, what the hell was that? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, yeah, there's there's a lot of points being scored on society. But movies of that time, that's what, you know, the Omega Man, Soylent Green, you can't get away from it. But in a sense, it wasn't, yeah, was it hitting you over the head? Yes, but it was not so horrific as it is today. And at least it created tension and drama and a story that we haven't, we didn't see in this god that god awful remake. And I don't even know what the third one's like because I wasn't, I wasn't going to go see, you know, Monkeys Gone Wild, the well, third I, Planet of the Apes movie. Well, Mark, I'll, I'll just say this: Jeff and I talked about this a little offline. At this period of time, I mean, and you mentioned the three movies that I talked to Jeff about. Uh, he did this, he did Soil and Green, and he did um, Omega Man. Omega Man. And it's funny because at that period of time, that seemed to be the period when you had the, uh, what the hell was that one dude who was predicting the you know the fall of humankind? Uh, was it Richard Ehrlich? Um, oh, Hal. There, there was, was the Club of Hale, Rome. There was all sorts Hale of Hale Irwin, or not Hale Irwin, Hal, Hal something. Yeah, all these guys were talking. The end of the world is nigh. Um, it was, you know, by 1979, it's all going to be, yep. we're all gone. And Hal Lindsey, Hal Lindsey. Yeah, it was just all yep. this. I mean, the, you know, the sky is falling stuff about how, you know, that we'll be out of resources in 10 years. Kind of yep. like how the polar ice caps were supposed to have melted four years ago, and they're, they're not. Um, like Soil and Grain took place 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, right. that was just it. I mean, they were predicting, just like Ken said, I mean, if you watch that movie, they were predicting the end of the world, or, or not the end of the world, but this like exhaustion of natural resources. Yeah, overpopulation. And for, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, folks, if you've never seen Soil and Green, go see it. It's great. Yep. It's great. It's the best backlot science fiction movie you'll ever see. <laughs> I think it was shot for a budget of $2.98 in the backlot of United yeah. Artists. Yeah, and when he says backlot, we mean backlot. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was in the Walmart after Christmas sales section of the backlot. <laughs> yes. Steve, I want to just go back to what we were, we're, we were just mentioning that. You know, Hollywood and their perception of what the future looked like and when it looked like that. Um, you know, we, we've talked about that before, how Hollywood will, will say, okay, well, in 2010 or 2014, 2020, you know, we're, we're going to be, you know, star travelers or we're going to be doing this or have this technology or have the capability of doing this. And, and we're nowhere near it. I think one of the good things is about this movie, it does go out far enough because it goes out to what year? Like thirty, yeah, three thousand, three thousand years or something. Right. I mean, yeah, well, but, it, but they're supposed to have been, they're supposed to have left Earth like in nineteen seventy two or nineteen seventy eight or something like that. Right. I mean, they're and supposed they, to be seventies dudes. I mean, they got out of the disco and jumped in their ship and off they went. But they ended up coming back in enough time for possibly apes to have evolved 
you know, this wasn't a, okay, well, they left in 1972 and showed back up in 2020, and now, or, you know, apes are ruling the world. I mean, they put it out at least, you know, 1,500 years in the future where you can think, okay, if if this is going to happen, this amount of time has to pass, especially for humans not to be able to talk anymore um, or to have lost the ability to speak. And, you know, and we, we've lamented before how, Movies don't go out far enough, and that was yeah. one thing I did like. Was this movie, in my opinion, went out far enough? I, I agree with you. Good and point. Uh, if any screenwriters are listening, please take that under advisement. When you're trying to say that something, you know, there's some radical change in society or something, don't put it ten or fifteen years from now. Shove it down an extra hundred years, long enough that you know we can disassociate. Even you have to even go out more than 30 years because, you know, we talked about it when we did Blade Runner. I mean, that was in 1981, and, um, you know, we're five years away from the Blade Runner universe, and we're not, we don't have overseas, we don't have, uh, you know, interstellar colonies or fly, where's my flying car? I don't have a flying That's car. what they That's want you right. to think. Yeah, well. I, well, I, and, yeah. and without going too far off the beam, I'll tie it back to one of our trivia questions. Babylon 5 does a good job of that. They throw it far enough out. It's like what? You know, 2150, 2158 yeah. when the series starts. Yeah. And they even bring, I mean, but they even explain how, okay, even that far out, we still were not. Right. The reason we got as advanced we were is because we just bumped into the Centauri. Right. And they're like, hey, you know, we'll, we'll sell you this stuff. That's the only reason we got that advanced. So. Yeah, it's one of those things where if you do it, I mean, if you're going to do some crazy sci-fi, you better you better think ahead, like way ahead, because we're just not we're not advancing that far. Anyway, that's our social commentary about this movie, and uh, for future screenwriter advice, guys, real quick, let's talk about some of the actors in this one. Obviously, the uh, the main one is uh, uh, the late and great, God rest his soul, Charlton Heston who was the uh, iconic actor of this era. You know, there's something about him that reminds me a little bit of John Wayne. When Charlton Heston's in a movie, you get Charlton Heston. He plays well, that same. That's it. Yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. He's Charlton Heston. Well, I mean, he, it's the same thing we've been saying about De Niro or Pacino. I mean, you, you, the actor is, is the man on the screen. If you want that type of person, then you go and get that type of person. Um, I had heard not too long ago, you know, that somebody said, well, what, what do you think actors do? Oh, they, and the an, an answer that was given was, well, they, they, they try to um, act to pretend to be somebody else on the screen. And, and the, the talent people said, no, they are portraying themselves in that role on the screen. And I thought that was interesting that, well, if, if that's what talent scouts, View want is for you to portray yourself on the screen in that role, as opposed to assuming a new role on that screen as somebody else. I mean, we we can think of obvious differences. Um, you know, Christian Bale always seems to try to recreate himself in, in into a new character, um, but you know, Charlton Heston is Charlton Heston, and wh- what you're going to see is what you're going to get, and, and nothing more, nothing less. And almost every movie, I think he's done. And that's okay. That's I think that we have to explain to the audience that's what that's what you wanted. That's the guy you wanted in this movie, and that's the guy the studios want. So if you understand that going in, great. You'll enjoy his. You'll enjoy. You'll enjoy his role in the movie. 
Well, let me ask you guys. What did you guys think about his acting portrayal in this movie? You know what he was? And here's the thing. I'm going to throw this one out there right now. Charlton Heston, I think, went to the William Shatner School of Acting. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, when I'm watching this movie, actually, when I watch any movie with Charlton Heston in it, it's like you would almost swear those two created a, a certain kind of acting because it's so over the top. I, I mean, the only thing that Heston doesn't do is throw the body language that Shatner does. But, you know, the facial expressions and just some of the, you know, just some of the overacting, it's like that. But I get this very much Shatner-esque view of of him pretty much in anything he does. So that, that's sort of why I was saying I got a a Star Trek vibe off this movie when I watched it. Like the set of the spaceship, like that might as well be a shuttle from the Enterprise. I mean, yeah. the way they put it together. Again, the way it felt, the way the sets look, the props look, it felt like an old TV, you know, one of the original series sort of, you know, special level of special effects. And I'm not saying that's bad because in its day, that was great. I mean, I ate that stuff up when I was a kid. But yeah, when you have Heston, I mean, he's, he's hamming it up. I mean, it, you know, Hormel company called and said some ham was missing when he put this movie out. <laughs> But that's what he did. That's yeah. why you hired the guy. Yeah. You know, this isn't Lawrence Olivier. Right. Yeah, this is, you know, Charles Heston. Ken, I don't know what you mean by this. This would have been better if Charlton Heston was wrestling at Gorn back in those rocks. <laughs> I do want to throw something out here. Back in my days of, you know, refereeing traveler sci fi role playing games, if the group crash landed on a planet and they're going through a desert and they come to a pool of water and they said to me what i said what is your characters doing i said we're going to strip off all of our clothes yeah. cast all of our gear aside and jump in and play around in this pool i just be going like Bwahahaha. well why don't you guys hop in i'll just sit here and watch this stuff and you know i'll pull this pistol out of the case we got here just in case some strange animal comes or something. But no, it's like, oh, let's just throw our... Like, you guys are seriously like the most elite astronauts mankind can produce, and that's what you did? And like, no, you bunch of dumbasses. You and after you, you, after you had just seen a scarecrow. Right. So you and you know there's somebody yes. around here. Well, how do you know there's not, you know, interstellar piranha in the lake? Well, I mean, hell, I, I would have thrown that <laughs> in if I was around a game. Jump in, something... Dangling gets Ken, off. You know, you know how, Ken? You know how we would have dealt with that problem. We would have thrown a grenade in first, but made you, sure nothing surfaced. Like I said, these guys, for supposedly being elite astronauts, they immediately just start running around being jerk asses and ignoring you know everything they were ever trained to do. Yeah, so they serve what they got. But Ken, everybody you ever ran in a traveler game was a paranoid schizophrenic. Right. Well, there is that. <laughs> I want to I want to point something out real quick. All right, first of all, they were going on this obviously this colonization mission. So let's get into some of the plot and the scenes and some of the like things that I don't think they thought about back in 1968. But I look at it now, going, I mean, who planned this thing? Because this thing was doomed to fail from the start. Uh, yeah, we're, let's have three men and one woman on the colonization mission. That will work. Yeah, that's going to work real well. 
I, I'm sure. Well, she's, I'm sure she's thrilled. Maybe she is. I don't know. She volunteered. She yeah. volunteered for it. It wasn't like they clubbed her over the head and dragged her onto the ship. Yeah. Thank but, you, Nova. You know, it seems that the 1960s is a is a decade of transition between that that stage acting period and and bridging over into you know the, the new age of you know the, the the cinema type of acting. I mean, it seems to be kind of at the end. We're still kind of learning the ropes here because Charlton Heston very much seems like a stage actor up there with his with his mannerisms and posture and and his cardboard delivery at times. Um, but I, I do like how they tried to think their way through the, the steps throughout the movie, at least or at least in the first half hour of it. Now, sure, they they do some bonehead maneuvers and see some scarecrows and, you know, cast caution to the wind there and just, you know, go skinny dipping, which, again, I would have at least kept my underwear on. If I'm hanging out with you four, I'm not I'm not going naked. Um, Thank God. Look, we've seen your feet, and that's enough. Well, I mean, again, I... My, I guess here's, here's my thing. It wasn't even that stuff. It was just the entire... The idea that... They were going out to colonize a planet, and what did they have? They had three days' worth of food, 145 and 20 rounds. Really? <laughs> well, it just, it, I mean, that that just almost was, why did you even have that shit? Why was it just, you know, give you a pocket knife and a book of matches and, you know, do Survivor? Well, it, it, had, it had a little, you know, a false sense of security. I mean, yeah. you're, but you're right. You have one girl for three dudes. Well, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna get some sort of uh, um, inbreeding here pretty quick. You know, I you know because we had that technical hiccup. I'm just gonna jump back. We're gonna talk about a couple of the other actors. Um, Please do, guys. Let's talk a little bit about Roddy McDowell. Uh, he played Doctor Cornelius. Uh, anybody who's ever seen Roddy McDowell, you can tell who it is behind the mask just because <laughs> of his voice. Yeah, you know, Roddy McDowell was a respected actor. He'd done a lot of good work, and I can remember watching a you know special on TV when this movie was being made, or, or shortly thereafter, on how it was made, especially the makeup. The make you know for its day, the makeup, the prosthetics that they used were groundbreaking. It had never been done, and showing how they took this guy who was a well, very recognizable person. And turn him into a, a, a monkey, a chimpanzee, and uh, you know it's it is neat because if you know his voice, his voice is very dominant, but you can't really pick him out by face because they have done such a good job of altering the way these people look. I think to go with Ken's point, I mean, you know, a lot of times when you put people in makeup, you can kind of make out who they are, but if you if you go on and, and look at the pictures of the actors that were in this movie you will you will recognize i think a fair amount of them but you could not i mean if you just put them in a photo lineup um in their makeup you probably couldn't pick them out maybe Rowdy McDowell um but i think the other actors i mean the makeup really mask who they are you might be able to recognize their voices but i mean these i, I don't think a lot of these actors were highly unknown. I mean, they had some fairly decent-named actors at the time, didn't they? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, Kim Hunter, Roddy McDowell, Charlton Heston, for these times, I mean, these were named actors. I mean, these were top star at that time, which, you know, again, maybe for some of our younger uh, listeners, you know, like Jeff, you know, wouldn't know these people from Adam. I'm kidding, Jeff. 
Well, right. you know, and the, even the backup characters, the supporting cast, back at that time, were well known. I mean, what you know, James Whitmore, right? When you hear his voice, if you're you know watch shows from that era, you know exactly who the guy is, but you couldn't tell at all that that's who he was. For its day, the makeup they did was so much better. I mean, before this, anytime you're going to have you know an actor portraying some kind of a monkey. It was just a guy in a hairy suit and a mask. But right. this one, they actually, they got it to where the face, you know, the, the face was actually, you know, made to look, you know, very ape-like. And, uh, and the mouth moved and everything else. Now, they didn't have it totally synchronized to where it really looked totally authentic, but it was close enough for, you know, what it was. Well, and, and let's jump into that. Um, the makeup on this, I think, for that time, was pretty groundbreaking. And I think we've all talked about that offline. And I think we all agree. I mean, this really is something that was pretty amazing for the time. Yes. And, mm-hmm. you know, and like Jeff said, I mean, you, you couldn't really tell who was who. Obviously, you know, Cornelius, you know, as soon as you hear him talk, it's like, oh, that's Ryan McDowell. Cause you know his voice, you know, but some of the others, Kim Hunter didn't sound like Kim Hunter. I've seen her in a bunch of movies and that didn't sound like her. Because I think she had some, I think she had trouble talking through that mask. But well, she was also volumed up. Oh yeah, that's true. We're, we'll talk about that in the trivia. That's <laughs> I missed yeah. that. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, she was volumed up. Yeah, she was. Well, uh, just part of the trivia, she felt that the the makeup and everything they put, it, she was very claustrophobic. And when they put her in that, it just enhanced that claustrophobia. So before every shoot, um, when she had to get uh, uh, the makeup put on, she would take a Valium. Hey, get you through. Yeah, if it gets you through the, it gets you through the shoot. But I, I think it kind of showed a little bit. Maybe that's why she was kind of slurring some of her words throughout. The- <laughs> mommy needed her. Mommy needed her little helper. Yeah, pretty much. I guess I picked a bad day to quit sniffing glue. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Just gonna start surfing the internet. Is gonna find another. Uh, I am actually looking at Airport Simulator 2014 right now, and I'm actually looking at the reviews of it. Here we go. Oh, good lord. We're not talking about Airport 72 or 665. We're talking about a airport simulator, not one where airplanes crash. And and George Kennedy sits on the tarmac saying, damn it, clear the airfield. Oh, gosh. Do you, do you like Turkish baths, Kenny? Oh, I'm sorry, different airport. Here we go. That would be airport. It's all the same. All right. So we talked about that. I want to talk about a little bit some of the scenes that kind of stood out to me. I did like the fact that very early on in this movie, and this one was kind of, I think, different from that period of time because it didn't start off with credits or, you know, big introduction. It was just like, boom, immediate scene, and you've got Taylor sitting in the cockpit of the um, – you know, the space shuttle that's flying off to wherever. And I like the fact that he's just sitting there smoking on a stogie and, you know, reading the ship's <laughs> log like Shatner. Yeah. That's one of those things that always jumps out nowadays when you're watching some movie from back, you know, in the past and they're smoking up a storm. Because, yeah. you know, like today it'd be like, oh, my God, you know, like the boycott this movie, you know, can never be made because you're promoting the use of tobacco. Well, and that was just it. I mean, because that shuttle looked like it was about the size of my basement. And you've got four people in there, 
And, you know, and he's just puffing on the stogie. Obviously, you know, filtered air's not a premium up here, but that's okay. And here's the part I like. I like the fact that he's done with, you know, when he gets done giving his, you know, the captain's log and all this stuff, and he's he's going to get back into his um, cryogenic bunk, he just kind of, like, stubs out the cigar, and he puts it in his pocket. Are you sure you got that thing out all the way? Because, I mean, I mean, you might, you, did you guys notice that? He, like, yeah. put it in his pocket. And you only then, got so many on this long space flight. I guess not. They're, pre- they're precious commodities. What you said just made something trigger, and it's like, I think 68 was the same year 2001 came out. They both it featured was. astronauts getting into sleep pods and all. 2001 was a much bigger budget movie, and they put a lot more into the you know the technical realism as much as they could for the day. Right. This one here, like I said, I mean that that could have been a you know a set from Star Trek. Guys, now did you guys watch this on Netflix? Yeah. Yes. Okay, maybe it's me, but it seemed like there were parts of this movie that I because I I think I watched this thing maybe about six months ago, and there are scenes in here I don't ever remember seeing. Which ones? Um, all right, yeah. let's start with that. Well, that whole part when he said, how much water do we have? And he says, well, we're down eight ounces. And he puts a stogie in his mouth. And then and then him and Landon or Lando or whatever his name is, they start getting into the conversation about, you know, well, you know, who did you buy your way to get here? Or why are you here? And that whole long conversation they were having. Um, I don't ever remember any of that. You know, it's, it's interesting because – I looked at the at the uh, at the timer on my player when I was when I was running this because I was like, how far am I into this? And I haven't seen any of the apes yet. I just again, I like can I haven't seen this in probably twenty years. And I looked and I'm like, we're twenty five minutes into this movie, and I don't remember it being that long before we encountered the apes or or the the the, the other the other people. But it, it yep. seemed to be a lot longer to get there than what I really remember. But, again, it's been 20 years. Well, I'll, I'll throw in what I suspect is going on here, and that is when we first saw this, and probably for several viewings in our younger days, we were watching it on TV, and on TV they regularly, especially back in the 60s and 70s, they uh, would just chop big chunks out of a movie so they could fit it in between the commercials. Right, yeah, good point. Very good point. Or, or just to sit there and say, well, this is a what the, what what the scene covers, or this, you know, it's too disturbing for a mass market. We don't want to expose small children or something to this, so they just chop it out. So I strongly suspect that you're not wrong. You know, your earlier viewings of this back in the day, it just wasn't there because you were watching it on regular TV. See, and I kind of wonder about that, but like I said, I saw this about six months ago, and I can't tell you if I watched on streaming, got the DVD, or what the hell it was. But, I mean, there was a bunch of scenes. I mean, just some of the whole things where they were, like, traversing through, you know, the river after they got off the ship. Actually, the one scene that is a complete blank, when uh, Taylor has the one-on-one meeting with Dr. Zayas, or Zayas, uh-huh. I don't ever remember that. I, I can remember that. Do you really? See, yeah. That, you know, I was like, when the hell did they throw that in? Because that's basically when Zayas is saying, I know who you are, and I know where you came from. That whole scene, I don't remember any of that. 
I don't know. Maybe I must have went to the bathroom at that point or something. I just because there were parts of this thing that just completely were foreign to me. And I've seen this movie numerous times, but that particular scene I do not remember. You know, it's interesting. I I haven't seen this movie numerous times. I was familiar with it, and some of the scenes came back to me, and I you know I recognized them. But for me, it was almost watching it brand new, and I really. And just kind of let myself not try to guess what was coming up or second guess what was going on. I just enjoyed watching the movie as if it was a you know a, a new movie, um, because so much of it. I mean, again, if you haven't seen something in twenty years and you don't remember a lot of it, uh, it is kind of a new movie. That scene that you're talking about, Steve, it, it probably is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, hmm. because it, especially when you consider where it's going. As far as what in the end, the, you know, the revelation, it's like, so he's known all along and, and he was letting it was, it was very cryptic in everything he was saying because he was trying to keep everything in, under control. And, and, and I liked that play between him and Heston. And I thought that was, I thought it was one of the cooler parts of the movie. Ken, you mentioned some plot holes and I'm going to throw this one out there. I want to see if it's yours since we're on plot and scenes. In this movie, I guess the part of it is, and this was always an issue that Deb had when I would force her to sit and watch Star Trek with me. She's like, why is it every time they go to a planet, pretty much everybody looks like us. They all speak our language. Kirk obviously can shack up with any alien species. It was the whole concept of he thinks he's on a different planet. So now he's seeing that there's apes that speak English. I mean, he understands what they're saying. They can read what he writes. I mean, you almost have to, like, suspend a certain amount of disbelief. You have to spend a ton, a truckload <laughs> of disbelief. Okay. I mean, do you see where I'm going with this? It's no, a... that, that's, that's very common. And, yeah, again, it'd be a totally different movie if they made the apes a totally different culture and language and writing and everything else. If you throw me into a thing someplace and you say, okay, you know, you can pick up your pen, write, you know, my name is Ken on a piece of paper, hand it to these creatures from another planet and go, oh, wow, your name's Ken. Hey, how you doing, Ken? I, you can't do that on Earth. I mean, <laughs> if you drop me you know, on 80 percent of the world's surface and I write my name is Ken and hand it to a local, they're going to say, you know, soccer blue. You know, <laughs> well, hey, 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 Ken, what happens if you write my name is Ken in Scotland? Why did you have to say that? (laughs) In Scotland, they would be able to read it. They could read it. That you're you're baiting me, Slover, and I'm. I'm (laughs) This was done well for its time, but I will tell you, if you're a you know a trained astronaut, and you are dropped on a world where. You can breathe the air. It's temperate. You can walk around in shirt sleeves. You know, you can jump in the water and nothing like kills you instantly. You know, there are human beings running around. There are, you know, creatures that speak your language and write your words. You're not going to be going like, well, I'm on a totally foreign planet. I wonder where I'm at. You know, you go like, hell, somehow I'm like, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it's just a bunch of monkeys running the place. <laughs> well, and, it's the, and it goes the other way. Yeah. I don't care how religiously zealous you are. You know, if I'm sitting here and there's some chip sitting on my sofa saying, hey, Ken, go get me some Cheetos and beer. You know, I want to watch the movie. I'm going like, 
you know, maybe that chimp's got something going on. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to sit there and say, no foul beast, you're an abomination. No, it's like, hey, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's right in your face. And, you know, to make the movie work, they have to get past that. And I'm not complaining about it, except a little. But they, they, you know, you're right. It's a, it's very common on TV series. Nowadays, anytime, you know, you land on a foreign planet, it looks like the suburbs of Vancouver. Right. Back then, yeah. it looked like the hills of California. <laughs> because it was in the hills of California. And Arizona. Was it in Arizona too? Is that where they yeah. some of this? No. Yeah. Lake Powell. No, that's not Arizona. Powell's in Utah. Uh, Utah, uh, Nevada, isn't it? No. Well, part what of it is in Utah. A little bit of it is in, I think the, uh, Glen Canyon Dam is actually in Arizona and then it's right there where those states come together. When I was watching that, all of a sudden it, you know, they have that scene where they're paddling along through the lake and, uh, all of a sudden I realized that, hey, you know, uh, that uh, John Carter movie that came out a couple years ago, they wound up paddling around on Lake Powell, too, because it is a an unearthly, weird-looking terrain. If you want to go someplace really strange-looking, drop somebody in a boat on Lake Powell. Well, yeah, I mean, it does. It just looks very, yeah, like you said, it looks perfectly off-world, and it's like if you want to do something that looks prehistoric or, you know, that, or paleolithic, that's the place to go. That's I was going to say. I mean, location is totally key. I mean, you get why you you know you, you scout out the planet for places to go and 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 shoot. That's why the Lord of the Rings series. I mean, you know, shooting New Zealand for us and probably the rest of the world has never been to New Zealand before. It was very foreign to all of us, and so it made you feel like you were in you know a a fantasy land because of just the the terrain and the scenery there. Well, I, I want to throw out something just for you guys and see if anybody has any thoughts or things to say. And that is, there's about a 10-year gap between this movie and Star Wars. And both movies spawned, you know, a string of sequels. Both had a, you know, you could go out and buy action figures and everything else. They were both seen in their day as an earth-shaking. How, how do they compare to each other? You guys have any thoughts on that? Well, it's funny you mention that. I, when I was talking to Steve offline today, I said I am thoroughly convinced that George Lucas was totally influenced by this film. I mean, because of all the marketing, the figures, the lunch boxes that spawned from this movie here, that it was something that had to have caught his eye. And he said, this is what I want to do, and I want to duplicate that success. Jeff's on to something. This was the first mass, one of the earliest mass marketing efforts keyed towards an, a specific audience kids and i i'm like you jeff i agree i think that it it stuck with with lucas once he realized he had a cash cow by the time he came for return of the jedi oh yeah and he 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 knew what to do because he had seen the playbook this set the template that they plugged star wars into not that i'm saying it's the same plot or storyline no. But the way it was marketed, the way it was just promoted, I thought it was funny that uh, when they came back and said, "Okay, we want you know this is you know we made a bunch of money, we want to do a sequel." Hey, Charlton Heston, we want you to be in the sequel. He essentially says, "Yeah, I'll come back for the sequel, but you got to kill me off fast." 
because he didn't want him to get stuck into a series of these. So are you saying that Charlton Heston was Alec Guinness? <laughs> There's a, there is a correlation there. Jeff and I talked about this offline a little bit. I mean, I think this was one of those movies that really kind of set that stage of this was such a blockbuster hit. Let's make a bunch of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes wasn't bad because this movie pretty much the way it ends, it sets it up for a sequel. I mean, it really does. You're just kind of like, okay, what happens? Now, you kind of ended it there and that would have been it and just left it the iconic film that it was. Beneath the Planet of the Apes wasn't horrible, but then after that, it literally just, I mean, it doesn't even get over the shark tank. It just, well, I mean, Fonzie just drops in, Fonzie (laughs) drops in the tank and just gets torn apart. This thing... I mean, they get so bad. They knew they had a cash cow. For example, when you hit rock bottom is Battle of the Planet of the Apes, right? Uh-huh. It cost them a paltry one point. I'm looking at Wikipedia, so I'll take it for what it's worth. It cost them a paltry one point seven million to make. That thing cleared eight point eight million. Now, at that point, all they call a good return on investment. And that was, uh, yeah, that was for TV, too. That was the right. theater release. This is yeah, Roger Foreman right. at his a, best. They had a Planet of the Apes series. Yeah. For yeah. A, a brief time. This is Roger Corman at his best. They realized we can run this dog into the ground, and we're going to. You know, this movie, well, it made seven times what it cost to make. You know, it cost like $5 million to make and made over, you know, $35 million in, I think, you know, $1968. So somebody said, you're right. I mean, you guys are right. I mean, somebody said, well, this is a cash cow. So what did they decide to do? They decided they were going to do one every year for like the next five or six years. Uh, at that point there, I mean, you you know, it even at one point some million dollars and you're making eight million, you're still, you know, making five or six times the amount of what it costs to make. But you see the difference between going from thirty five million down to about eight million dollars. You know, it, it had lost something by that point. And you're just throwing you're just throwing poo at the screen at that point. <laughs> I will agree with Steve though, this this beneath the planet of the apes, the the, the first sequel it, you know, it was cheesy and it was cheap and all, but it was, I mean, I can remember watching it and thinking, okay, you know, it's, it's kind of nice. Back back then, you know, today I would just say, oh, it's, it sucks. But back then, you know, it was seen as a, a decent movie. And from what I understand, you know, they made that movie with the intention, okay, that this is it. We're, we, we did our sequel. We're not going to milk this. And then it did well, so then I said, okay, we'll make one more. And they wrote these first three movies, all as standalone movies, saying like, okay, this wraps it up, and then, oh no, we gotta make another, another, uh, sequel, cause we can, it's a cash cow. So, you know, it's very disjointed. I, I, you know, I, I don't even want to talk about the sequels. They're phoning <laughs> it in on the sequel. Yeah. Oh okay. yeah. We're, we're done on those. It's, oh gosh. I mean, when you've got, when you're recruiting Sal Minio to be in your movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's when it's, like I said, after Beneath the Planet of the Apes, that's when Fonzie went right into the shark tank. Yep. <laughs> All 
All right, guys, let's talk a little bit. There's some trivia I have here I want to get into before we get into uh, our favorite parts of the show. Number one, during film breaks in the, I'm sorry, during breaks in filming, actors made up as different apes species tended to hang out together. The gorillas with the gorillas, orangutans with orangutans, and chimps with chimps. It wasn't required. It just naturally happened. Interesting social commentary. Self-segregation. There, there you go. Countless studies done. Well, not countless, I'm sure. But there's been enough studies done that groups will self-segregate. Yep. It's just comfortable and natural. Um, well, look, look at us. Maybe. Geeky, geeky <laughs> morons hanging out together on a Friday well, night. Again, I mean, it, it, <laughs> I mean, you don't. Well, I mean, you know, Ken, I mean, he would be at the bars, you know, us. I, right. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't. The Mark, bars. Steve would too. Um, yeah, I'm with, I'm, the, with the right group of people, I would too. I guess Mark's the odd yeah. man out here. No, I, but, the right group of people, but <gasps> yeah, us. Look what I'm stuck with. Yeah, <laughs> you, you three chuckleheads. Look what I'm stuck with. All right, uh, let's see. Number two, the movie's line, take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape, was voted the number 66 movie quote by the American Film Institute out of 100. So there you go. And it's it's kind of surprising when he says it. Because up, you know, I mean, he, you know, at least for a period of time in the movie, he he wasn't saying anything, and right. then all of a sudden he just, you know, he blurts this out after he'd been captured, right? And it, and it kind of caught you off guard. It did. All right, let's see. Uh, Linda Harrison, be still my heart, who plays Nova, was having an affair with producer Richard D. Zanuck at the time of production. Good for him. In the year of the film's release, Zanuck divorced his first wife and married Harrison, and the couple were married for nine years and had two children. So there you go. I'm not going to make any more commentary on that than I have. Charlton Heston. Yeah, well, I'll just say that, you know, from what I understand, that is the only time that phenomenon has occurred in Hollywood. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, it just, it's so rare. How rare. Uh, Charlton Heston was sick during much of the film with the flu. Rather than wait for him to get better, the producers felt that his hoarse voice added something uh, to the character of Taylor. According to Heston's diary, after filming the scene where Taylor and Nova are forcibly separated, he wrote that he was feeling like hell while shooting because of his illness and felt even worse every time that damn dirty fire hose hit me. Okay, I just made that part up. I mean, I made up the voice of Charlton Heston, which I completely screwed that because I, I i thought he came back from the grave let's see Roddy mcdowell who was an experienced actor recommended to his companions in makeup that they should frequently add ticks blinks and a source <laughs> associated assorted facial gestures to add a sense of realism and keep the makeup from appearing mask like mcdowell reportedly became a very merry prankster on the makeup um, driving home with his makeup on and shocking some of the drivers on the freeway. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Remember at Gen Con, the, the Cornelius Stormtrooper? Oh, yeah, that dude was cool. Yep. yep. It was actually a she. That was a she? That was a she. Oh. But a perfect, perfect Cornelius makeup. You yeah. don't see that often. No, not at all. Uh, let's see. The apes don't make their first appearance in the first 30 minutes of the film. So, guys, there you go. If we were wondering, I, I, I maybe I'm just forgetting some of the early scenes because that's about right. Uh, turning down the part of Zira was one of Ingrid Bergman's greatest regrets. Ingrid Bergman. Um, 
she was much surprised at how well the film uh, finished when it turned out, and she later confided to her daughter, and I had no idea this was her daughter because <laughs> he stole my heart again, <laughs> Isabella Rossellini, that in hindsight, the film would have been an ideal opportunity for her to disregard her regal bearing. And she also regretted missing the opportunity of working with Charlton Heston. Wow. She would have been great in the role. Yes, she would have. Um, but Kim Hunter did had anything wrong. Kim Hunter did a fine job. No, she did a fine job, but I'm still, I'm, I, to be honest with you guys, I'm not up on my Hollywood stuff, but I had no idea that the absolutely gorgeous Isabella Rossellini was, um, oh, yeah. Eimer Burton's yeah. daughter. Yeah. Put, put them side by side. I'm going to have to do that because I was like, wow, I always thought her, <laughs> I'm just moving on because I'm going to get myself in trouble. You need um, a moist towelette. I might need one. Actually, I just need a mop. Um, <laughs> Uh, this film contains, you know, this is really uncomfortable. Save this part after that conversation. This film contains Charlton Hesson's first nude scene. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Boy, it was very racy. Yeah, you and know, was and, thing, it was a thing like, don't take your children to see this. Number one, they'll be freaked out. I mean, I, did, they, did they have nude scenes back in, in the late 60s in movies? I, I'm just wondering because. Very seldom. And they tend to be avant-garde sort of things or straight porn. But mostly, it was starting to be worked in, but it was a big deal. And when it happens, like, oh, my God, you'll lock up your kids. Don't let them see this. Yeah. I mean, in all you're seeing here, when you talk about nude scenes, you're talking about bum shots is all you're seeing. So it's like, all right. And not very good bum shots, by the way. No, no. Obviously, these guys were not in the the, uh, spin class or doing squats. I'll just say that. But but that was a what th- you're saying I, is you could beat him. I have no comment on that, right? right. Because you know I don't want I don't like to brag is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? Bragging. Oh well, thanks for clearing Braggart. that up. I personally don't like to wander off into delusions, but you know that's just me. <laughs> mid, by the mid '60s, the old studio system was breaking down. Movies were more independent, and they were trying to break out of the old ways of doing it, and one way was to throw in some nudity. And it was pretty – I'm not saying like every mass market movie had it, but there's a lot of writers, a lot of producers that were integrating at least a little bit. Usually it was female nudity, but throwing in some male nudity too. Yeah, and I just kind of wonder because it just seemed like you know for this period of time – you just didn't see that. You watch movies, you know, from the sixties, even the early seventies. I mean, you just didn't see that. So you know, I was just curious. Let's see. One of the first films to have a major, large-scale merchandising tie-in, merchandise related uh, to the film, including toys and collectibles, action figures, picture and storybooks, trading card sets. God, did trading cards go back that far? Oh yeah. Uh, books, oh, records, trading cards go back to the what? 20s? Yeah. Real? Well, I know trading. Well, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking of the. I'm thinking like Magic and Warcraft and that. No, those no, are no, no, no. CCGs. Uh, but I will say this right now. I still remember, and I swear to God, I still wish I had it. I had a Planet of the Apes as a little kid. The uh, lunchbox, the aluminum lunchbox with the uh, thermos. Be worth some money. Oh, in mint condition. And I'll tell you what. You know what? I'm going to say right now, folks. You know what? Those things would be banned from school you know why that was a deadly weapon that was like having brass knuckles 
You hold that thing in there, somebody messes with you, you just start wailing on that, you will mess someone up. Especially when you put a brick in it like you did. No, I mean, all you had to do was have your thermos in there and you drink their milk. I mean, you could mess someone up with one of those. And you know who else can testify to that? My wife. She took a kid out with one of those. Yeah, she had the she had like some Barbie lunchbox. You have to ask her about the time when she beat the shit out of a kid at school with her lunchbox. It's a great story. All right, uh, moving on. In the original script, the female native humans were to be bare-breasted. The idea was squashed by Fox to appease censors. Damn you! <laughs> it seem, I seem to think that um, most of the women on here look like dudes anyway, so... I'm not sure we were missing anything. Early scenes in the movie where the spaceship crash lands in the lake were filmed at Lake Powell, which is formed by a dam on the Colorado River on the Utah-Arizona border. And I've never been to Lake Powell, so all right. Uh, It looks nice, though. Uh, The rifles used by the apes were remodeled M1 semi-automatic carbines, primarily used during the Second World War. And they look cool. Uh, Let's see, Linda Harrison, who played Nova, the gorgeous, dark-haired lady that was in this movie, uh, was pregnant with the producer, Richard D. Zanuck's child, and was starting to show towards the end of the shoot, which required care for posing on her part to conceal it. Oh, Zanuck, you naughty. Magnificent bastard. You naughty, naughty man, you. I bow to your magnificence. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, Like I said, I don't think when your job title is studio head of a major Hollywood studio, I don't think there's a problem in attracting attractive young women. Even I could pull that off. All right, guys, that's it with trivia. Let's move on to um, one of our favorite parts of the show. Brother, what you drinking? Mr. Mark, what do you got, sir? Um, don't know if it's new, but it's new to me. Newcastle has put out a new beer. Newcastle's Honey Brown is one of those good standbys. It's called the Newcastle Black Ale Cabbie Beer. Hmm? It's a black ale. Um, it's a very smooth, uh, it's kind of a bit of a cross between a porter and an ale. If you like Newcastle, they make good beer, good solid um, English beer. And this black ale, I really recommend trying it, guys. It, like I said, it's it's a nice, smooth, dark ale. They call it an ale, but it's got a bit of a porter to it. Nice flavor, um, easy drinking, uh, not a ton of alcohol content. I don't even know what this one's got. Uh, it's not going to have a whole lot. But um, I just saw it the other day at one, uh, 4.2 alcohol by content. Oof, drink these all day, Steve, and you'd never even notice. But uh, give it a try. Uh, if you like dark ales, and if you can find it, it's called Black Ale Newcastle Cabbie. Nice. like the sound. Have to check it out. Yeah, check it out. Uh, let's see. Uh, Mr. Ken, what do you got there, sir? Monkeys, chimps, and you know, gorillas and such, they live in the tropics. And they spend their lives foraging for food. They often climb up in trees to get various fruits and nuts. And one of the many fruits and nuts that they get are coconuts. And so that inspired me to have Malibu coconut rum and Diet Coke. Ooh. How'd that work out for you? I like coconut rum. It's good. 
If you haven't had their coconut rum and Diet Coke or regular Coke, try it. It's a tasty drink. If you like coconut. I mean, it is a coconutty flavor. But I love coconut. Uh, Mr. Munchie, what do you got? I went to a new liquor store tonight because um, I was not near mine. And this had a this place I went to had a very limited selection. But I, I went over to the cooler section, and I was just looking around. I was looking for a specific beer, and I found it. And it was um, it was one that our, our good friend, uh, the captain, um, had recommended. It was the uh, Goose Island, their bourbon beer. Oh, you found one. I did find it, and it comes in a nice four-pack. And um, I picked it up, and I took it up to the uh, cash register, and I said, um, there, there's, no, uh, there's no sign over here. How much is this? And when she said, 20, th- and I said, I'm just going to go ahead and put this back now. I'll be right back. <laughs> oh, ho. So um, <laughs> I did not actually purchase it, but I did have it in my hands tonight. You admired I, it. I did. I did admire it. It was. Do you have to um, clip a corner off your drunk card for this? Uh, no. I think you 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 go ahead and and give me a little uh, uh, check mark underneath the smart not to buy four beers for twenty three dollars. However, so I put that back and I said, you know what? I will I will ask that for Christmas next year. And then um, then I picked up um, as I was like, I'm not going to give up the the hunt here. I found a new beer now. I have not had canned beer since probably 1997, okay? I just don't do canned beers. But it was only in canned beer. The only option they had was for canned beers. So um, I picked up tonight the Guinness Red Harvest Stout. That's really good. This is amazing. Yep. (laughs) Um, I, Mark, have you ever had this before? No, not even heard of it. The back says um, it's an ancient Celtic. Fe- uh, the um, sorry, the Swanwen, an ancient Celtic festival held every year on All Hallows Eve, it celebrates the end of the fall harvest and the coming of winter. On this night, the be- the believers beckon restless spirits from the darkness and the bonfires and sweet offerings of. Nectar in the bosom. No, I just made that up from the Bountiful Harvest. Um, Guinness Red Harvest Stout captures the spirit of the night, and it's a luring blend of lightly roasted barley and subtle sweet Irish malt. Um, totally agree on the sweet. Totally, it, it is like a Guinness Stout, except much lighter. Um, hmm. It is not heavy. And matter of fact, you can see through the beer. It, it looks dark. But it actually is. Um, it, it it's not as um, well. You can just you can see through the glass. And um, if you don't like big heavy beers like Guinness, but you like the kind of on the stout side, this is excellent. Mm. And I've downed two of these bad boys. They came in four packs, fourteen point nine ounce beers in cans. I, I have yet to find an ABB on this, but so it they claim is, it's a stout. It's a, yeah. It's a, it call it, and it looks red. It 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 looks sort of reddish through the glass. They call it the Red Harvest Stout. Um, it, and you do when I first drank it, you do get the sweetness, and it is this this. I'm going to go back and get me 
um, a few more four packs because huh. this was this was great. Very good. Uh, like Steve? it. Okay. <clears throat> Let's see, guys. I went a little light tonight. The wife had the day off today. She had to go for her annual physical, so she had to fast all day. And I told her, I said, you know what, honey? What do you want to eat tonight? And she had a she had a taste for barbecue. And I said, you know, there's there's Big Hoffa's that's like down in Westfield, so I'll go pick up some barbecue for you. I like Big Hoffa's. That's oh, good barbecue. Dude. <laughs> this is good stuff. For anybody who is in the Indianapolis area, if you're within 50 miles of the Indianapolis area, you got to go to Big Hoffa's. Where's right. it at again? In Westfield. Right 32. Yeah. It's uh, just about a mile... Um, well, mile east of 31. Yep. Good barbecue. Oh. And good sides. Oh, God. Oh, my God. So I go over there, and we got um, a couple slabs of ribs. She got a brisket, and the small child got some chicken. So I'm driving back, and, and the whole car is permeating with the with the scent of this. And the whole time, because I haven't eaten since lunch, I'm like, oh, I must wash this down with something. <laughs> and guess what is on the way home? There's this uh, particular liquor store that has a two-in-one, and an amendment is part of their name. So I stop in there. Not, not the third amendment. <laughs> no, no not, not the third. It's not the third amendment. <laughs> so anyway, I stop in there. Because uh, they have the greatest selection of beers. And, guys, this is one I've uh, probably showcased before. Because if you're going to eat barbecue, particularly like really heavily smoked barbecue, you got to go with something light. And I didn't want to go too light. And I didn't want to go with, like, MGD64 because I didn't want to be the subject of ridicule and um, all that on the show. So, so you got I, papsed? No, I picked up from Sun King... A local oh. brewery, I got oh. the uh, the cream ale. Yes. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, went down nice. Oh, those ribs. Good Lord. They got the best brown beans uh, with some sugar on it. Oh, good Lord. I think you've Excellent. had enough. Excellent. It's wonderful. No, Mr. Taggart, I think you've had enough beans. And I'm going to tell you right now, these are the best ribs I have ever had in my life. As a matter of fact, Emily ended up leaving because the noises I was making, I was, I was eating those. She said, okay, you're making me uncomfortable. I'm going upstairs. So just so you know, folks, if you live around this particular area of Indianapolis, big office, awesome, awesome barbecue. Can't go wrong. Uh, had the ribs, the brisket to die for. So that's the it. beer? How's the beer? <laughs> The, the beer's pretty good, too. It's the rib podcast. <laughs> and, you know, the beer's pretty good, too. Um, Wait, I hate to say it, but I could totally get into, brother, what kind of barbecue are you eating as a part of this podcast? I could, could totally start exploring different barbecue joints. And we could do that. We we should uh, throw that in there. We have to, we'll have to coordinate that, though. We'll have to coordinate a... a, a, a well, Mark's got some good stuff down his way, too. Yeah, yeah, we got some different barbecue down here. Oh, yeah. All right, Western well, Kentucky barbecue. All right. Well, that's a, that's definitely a plan. We'll do it. Absolutely. All right, that is it with uh, Brother What You're Drinking and Brother What You're Barbecuing. So um, let's move on to clips, our favorite part of the show. And, boy, I've got a few here. Guys, I am just going to lead in with these. Uh, number one. Well, where are we? 
Do you have any notions, Skipper? We're some 320 light years from Earth on an unnamed planet in orbit around a star in the constellation of Orion. Is that close enough for you? You know, jerk. Yeah, Heston, yeah. Heston was a little bit of a jackass. D- dickweed? Yeah. <laughs> dickweed? Yeah. I was like, I'm trying to find the appropriate word to say in this. But he was a little bit of a, yeah. Uh, let's see. Number two, this is, um, I do like this part because one thing they do in this movie is, you know, the whole reverse thing where the humans are the, or the animals and the, the apes are the humans. I like this part here. You could get hurt doing that, doctor. Oh, don't be silly. He's perfectly tame. Uh, they're all tame until they take a chunk out of you. <laughs> How many times do we say that about our pets? That, that, well, that's what, you know, Jeff was telling one of the newer teachers in the teacher's lounge recently. <laughs> I don't hear Jeff saying that about his kids. Oh, they're perfectly tame until they take a chunk out of you. He's fine. If he lays in you, it's just best to let him finish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. This is uh, the next one. I call this gentleman our Hoosier Connection. Where did you learn to do this? Jefferson Public School. Fort Wayne, Indiana. There you go. Indiana's on the map because of this movie. Well, it was on the map before. Kelly's Hero was, uh, yeah. Had a reference to Indianapolis. What's that? Barbara. Babra. Babra. Oh, that's right. We did have a Babra. Where are you from? Indianapolis. Yeah, I forgot about that. All right. Well, I just thought that was pretty neat. Because it's like, where did they pick up Fort Wayne, Indiana, for him to go to school in? So I just thought that was nice. I liked it. So I had to throw it in there. All right. Next next one here. What's up, Lieutenant? We're taking number four over to surgery in five minutes. Have him ready. How come? The beast's throat's nearly healed. It's not his throat this time. The vet's going to geld him. Ow. <laughs> Heston kind of looks up like, what? <laughs> he, per- he perked up there real fast. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> They're going to do what? Gentlemen, this is what I refer to as the money quote of the movie. And a full disclosure, I've seen this movie numerous times, and I'm, I don't know, I must have been not paying attention, doing something or other. But when I was watching this movie for the podcast and getting the quotes, I had to get a new uh, computer monitor because I pretty much sprayed beer all over it when I heard this particular quote. Because the first thing after I heard it, I thought, who wrote this? Who wrote this in the movie? Did I tell you about Stuart? And there, there was a lovely girl. The most precious cargo we brought along. She was to be the new Eve. With our hot and eager help, of course. Really? Pretty guys, one girl. What can you say? Somebody be hot. Somebody be eager. thought this through better than this movie. It was just... Dr. Strangelove was saying, you know, that we it, need to have, you know, I think 50 nubile young women for every man if we're going to repopulate the world. I, I, I remember when he said that, I was like, did he just say what I think he said? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. That, oh. It's a fraternity party. Wow. 
All right. She volunteered. She volunteered. <laughs> of course she did. Now, did you have any idea you're going off to an, uh, never mind. Um, all right. Here we go. This is obviously the, well, at least one of the iconic, uh, quotes of this movie. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. Where's that music? I left the music in because it just fit. The thing is, they weren't that dirty. They were no. fairly clean. That's right. Especially I guess, the fire hose. Yeah. He really liked that fire hose. I mean, it's like, you can tell. He's like, one so ape, I can use the fire hose. And, hey, huh-huh. Yeah, that one ape had a little too much. It, it, it was almost like he was getting off with it. <laughs> well, he was kind of bouncing up and down. and Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, let's see. Number whatever. Did you know about this? No, I, I swear, I never saw this man before. But then, you did it. You cut up his brain, you bloody baboon. Technically, he's an orangutan. <laughs> I, think that, I think that was meant as an insult, Ken. You know, baboons, orangutans, they just rumble. They get anywhere within 50 feet of each other, it's on. All right, let's see. Um, again, another part of the social commentary. It's a little bit of a long clip, but I thought it was kind of poignant about the movie. But this is what I refer to is uh, read him the 29th scroll. Read to him the 29th scroll. Sixth verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. Yeah, so what's your point? Yeah, it sounds like something you would have read out of the Bible. Yeah, like that's part of the anvil to the head thing that I was talking about. Right. All right. Uh, let's see. Number. This is the last one. This is again probably number two of the iconic quotes of this movie, and probably in sci-fi movies. Oh my God! I'm back. I'm home. All the time. Finally, really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! There's a great scene in Madagascar where they do an homage to that. Is there really? I don't remember. They say, darn you! Darn you all to heck. <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't remember. Well, see, that was a thing. Madagascar, man, I'm drifting off. But I thought it was going to be soil and green as people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's where he finally realizes that he is not on another planet. He, for some reason, they got back home. They really don't get into that since they were supposed to go somewhere else. Somehow they got back home. But. Never mind, that's one of the other plot holes that I'm sure Ken has a long list of. 
All right, folks, that is it with clips, and we are now moving on to the Man Cave Movie Review Checklist. Number one. Did anyone jump out of a window? The escape hatch on the spacecraft had a window. They blew it and crawled out. Does that count? Well, it was an escape hatch. It was designed to go through. But it doesn't matter. I mean, it was designed. Well, it does, because what we're trying to say is, you know, people go through windows like, you know, a hot knife through butter. Well, that doesn't really work that way all the time. Uh, escape Otherwise, hatches, I was keeping an eye out, and they... I mean, even with all the chase scenes and everything else, I don't think he went through any windows. You know, Ken, as the uh, presiding judge of this uh, show, I, I think I'm going to give that one to you. I mean, that, the escape hatch, that was pretty good. They had to blow it out, but, hey, you know, that it was a window. Dang, I, I, I was just reaching. I was uh, like, grasping at straws. Yep, I'll give it to you. Uh, let's see, number two. If you want him, come and claim him. Was there an irrelevant female role in the movie? This should be interesting. No, I don't think so. I mean, they had introduced her. I mean, you know, she had a purpose. It was they were going to breed the animals together. Right. And, I mean, from there, I mean, it was just, I mean, she wasn't a huge focal point in the sense of, you know, the story was wrapped around her. She wasn't left behind. She wasn't forgotten. But I don't think she was irrelevant. She sure as hell was hot, though. Oh, my gosh. She was (laughs) just, oh. Just saying. I, I, I second that. Are you trying to go down the path of the, the equation is hot equals relevant? Is that how this goes? Oh, I'm, I'm just saying she's hot. I'm going to make the case that there is a Liv Tyler role in this movie. And we've discussed her and it's, you know, stared at her fa- face. Uh, it makes no sense to have one female in these sleep pods for the three men, if her job is to like, if this is like a colonization mission. So I'm going to say this movie could have been just as good if there were just three dudes in this spaceship and no woman. Ken has a point. Now, grant you, she didn't have any speaking role. She just sort of laid there in her sleep pod. But well, she was mummified by that point. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I'll make the case of if, if you just cut all this, the references to her out, the movie, you'd lose absolutely nothing in this movie. Although we would not have had that classic quote from Hessen. Which one? Do I have to play it again? Oh, oh. <laughs> she's the, the new Eve. Yeah, the new Eve. Yeah. See, well, I mean, that's that what I'm saying. You, you could take that out of the movie and no one would miss it. All right, let's see. Uh, next. Could the female role be better played by Tawny Katane? No. Uh, no, because Tawny was like six when this movie was made. So, no, she could not. Are we talking about it at the time or in her prime? Well, you know what? That's a good question. We have to look at, we have to put Tawny in her prime in these movies. and Especially in this movie, because this movie revolves around time dilation. Who knows what would have happened flying through space? Ooh, Ken, very nice. Nice. I like that tie-in. Gentlemen, no. what do you think? No. No? No. Could not have done a better job. No. All right. Uh, let's see. Next one. Was there an AT montage in this movie? 
I'm just going to throw out there, guys. I say no because this is like the this is the era of no montages. They didn't do it then. That's more of a '70s thing. No, there wasn't. No. Um, I can't really think of one. No. All right, uh, Muncie. And so it begins. Was there a Babylon Five reference in this movie? If we were talking about the 2001 version, we would have had a couple. But since we're talking about the 1968 version, no. No. Didn't James Whitmore appear in an episode of Babylon 5? You know, I was going to ask you that, too, because he's – the only thing I remember him in is, um, shit, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, he was in that, wasn't he? Yeah, he was the old dude that uh, took care of the library. But – I don't think he was in Babylon Five. I've been, I've been, I'm when I'm playing Warcraft, I've been watching the series again. So he'll stand out if he's in it. Yeah, nothing, Bupkus. Got it. All right, folks, that's it with the checklist. Uh, we've got um, what are we on the checklist? I mean, we, uh, I think we're like one for five on this one. Gosh, that's pretty bad. That's all right. It's an older movie. It's going to happen. All right, folks, that is it with the. Um, Checklist, so it is now time for the Man Cave movie review of this great and fantastic film. Mr. Mark, benchmark it. You know, I think that this has been recognized as one of the uh, great movies in cinema. Um, I think we all would say that it it set um, a standard for a lot of science fiction for the period, um, a very good story with some solid actors doing what they do best and great music. Um, the cinematography is outstanding. It has a lot of messages, and I think that's just the nature of this movie. And it's not bad. We're tired of it because we've been living it for the next last 35 years. But for the purpose of storytelling, it comes. it's part of the package, and you just have to accept it. Is in a lot of ways a timeless movie. I think it. It you don't. There are some moments where you go, eh, but it was shot in 1968, and if you go into it understanding when it was shot, and um, the time period and the time frame, what they had to work with, you really have to respect um, the producers and the directors for what they created. Uh, it, it is a, again, it is a classic science fiction movie based on a Rod Serling initial script, and that if you've seen Twilight Zone, that. That's what this is. So I'm going to give this. Um, I'm going to give this movie an eight and a half, taking out the, the some of the pains of the social commentary and some of the some of the acting, but um, as a whole, a very a very well done, timeless movie, and much better than anything from any era of the ape movies that has followed it. Nothing has nothing has surpassed it. Agreed. Uh, Ken, what do you say, sir? If you had asked me this around 1975, I would have said this was like a 9.8. But I've also, at the start and all through the podcast, I've been pointing out, in my mind, this is weakened in a lot of ways. Uh, some, of the, some of the elements I just I, I recognize, it's just, you know, technology has changed, the way they make movies has changed. But other parts do kind of bother me. They just feel kind of tired and dated. Having said all this, it is iconic. This has influenced and inspired a lot over the ages, and in a lot of ways, it's still well worth watching. So I'm going to give it a seven and a half. All right. Very good. 
Pending on the rail. Hey, thanks. It's been 20 years since I've seen this, and I I enjoyed this view. And if I can enjoy the view of a 20-year-old movie, um, you know, it, it, it's doing some things right. I try to hold movies to the standards from which um, they originated from. And, you know, 1968, 1967, somewhere around there, you know, I, I try to view it from that type of a lens. And, when I do that, and I and I look at a lot of movies, I mean, there there that era is dominated by plot holes and loopholes and um, just all kinds of. Uh, I still feel cinema was trying to trying to learn its way, but I feel that this movie did a lot of things right. It tried to put together a, a plausible story, and um, you can you can break this apart and dissect it a million different ways, but. I think it would be unfair to do for this movie, given um, the time frame and the advancements in which they had worked in within that time frame. So I'm not going to dissect it and 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 score any any point individually. But I mean, I, I feel that the movie was 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 thought out in the sense of they knew where they were going, they knew how they wanted to get there, and you know, it was it was about the story and even though I'm not big into to preaching movies in any in any in any way, you know the story itself gets us to where we need to, which is the realization that you know what humanity can do or has done to itself. It's it's a fun ride for me. I enjoyed it. Like Ken, I'm going to give it about a, a seven and a half eight. All right, very good. All right, guys, my review of this movie is I'm just going to start off like Mark. I'm going to go at about eight and a half. I look at this movie at the time and I saw it, gosh, I think on TV, maybe I might've been like, geez, maybe 11, 11 or 12 years old. And this movie had like a big impact on me because it's like, Oh gosh. I mean, it was kind of creepy. It, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. And does it hold up to today? Honestly, a lot of the makeup effects do. But um, some of the acting, yeah, it's cheesy here and there. I mean, when you get Charlton Heston in the movie, you know what you're getting. It's like John Wayne or De Niro or some of these guys. They just play themselves. So if, you, if you've if seen Heston in anything, you know what you're getting. But I thought the plot, I thought the commentary it was making, and the ending, everything about this movie I thought was very groundbreaking. And this was a pretty daring movie for that time. And, you know, for people that are a lot younger than us, really don't understand that movies were, that were made in the 60s and the 70s, they were really just kind of starting to break a little bit of ground in terms of pushing the social envelope, so to speak, politically, socially, religious, sexual, that type of thing. I mean, seeing any kind of nudity at all at this period of time was just like, Oh my God, you know, and all you're seeing here is man bum and a little bit of side boob. And that's pretty much it. And for that period of time, that was, that was pretty shocking stuff. So I look at this movie from a standpoint of it really broke ground for the sci-fi genre. And for those of you who've been listening to us, you know, we're big sci-fi fans a lot of those movies, unless it's like Transformers or Giant Monsters Destroying Cities, which, of course, some of us enjoy, stuff like this, which Present. is a little, 
(laughs) (laughs) Stuff like this, which was a little bit more subtle, eh, it doesn't kind of always make its way. But um, I I love this movie. If you've not seen it, you have to see this movie. If you like sci-fi, that type of thing, you have to go see it. It's iconic. It is, like Mark said, it is part of um, American pop culture. And a lot of the stuff you're going to see in this, a lot of the quotes that we did, I mean, it's permeated throughout the culture of uh, the country. So, All right, so that's it, folks. That's my review. And uh, that's it for Man Cave Movie Review, Episode 94. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new Man Cave movie. So until then, check us out at our website at mancavemovereview.com and look for us on iTunes at Man Cave Movie Review and leave us a comment and tell us if you like the show or didn't like it because we like all types of criticism. Also look for us on Facebook at Man Cave Movie Review and leave us a comment and give us a like. Uh, share us with your friends and that's the best place to get in touch with us. So if you have some comments, uh, commentary, or suggestions for movies uh, that we should review, and um, I'm going to, before we close it out, I'm going to mention a few things that were brought up to us by some of our new listeners. And also follow us on Twitter at Man Cave Movie. Guys, I just want to say, one of our uh, newest listeners uh, suggested a movie because he said he saw Stalag 17 and really enjoyed our show. And uh, I do appreciate the comments. And he said we uh, he recommended a movie I'd never heard before. It's called 36 Hours. And it's a um, World War II movie. It has James Gardner in it. And, guys, we need to maybe look at this one. I'd never heard of it. But when I saw the uh, plot synopsis, it looked quite intriguing. So I don't know if it's streaming or if it's on DVD, but uh, we'll have to check it out. Uh, so hard. until our next episode, ladies and gentlemen... I am your host, Steve Michaels, signing off with my very good and dear friend, Mark. You cut out his brain, you bloody baboon. Slover. It's a madhouse. A madhouse. <laughs> nice. God, I, you know, I almost pulled that quote and I forgot about it. <laughs> Classic quote. All right. And also saying farewell, adieu, and avidazan is our other very good and dear friend, Ken. Take your stinking paws off my vanilla vodka and Diet Coke, Rony. (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant. Well done, Ken. I was writing good night. Hi. Folks, all you got to do is see the movie and you'll understand. <laughs> oh, my God. And also saying farewell and adieu is our favorite, Penny on the Rail. Jeff, has anyone seen my loincloth, Muncie? <laughs> I, I can't follow that up. <laughs> that is... Wrong. That is... Hilarious. Good night, world. All right. I mean, that that was brilliant, Ken. Oh, wow. All right, folks. We are done with episode 94. Stick with us till next week. Until then, ciao.
All right, so that is it with uh, Man Cave Movie Review, episode 94. Uh, we're going to be back next week with a new Man Cave movie for you to enjoy. Uh, so until then, check us out at our website at mancavemoviereview.com and look for us on iTunes at Man Cave Movie Review. Oh, shit, you know what? I'm jumping way ahead. We haven't even done <clears throat> Way ahead. Way yeah. Ahead. We haven't even done our closings. We haven't done our reviews. We haven't done our reviews, but we, our synopsis of it. Steve has utter contempt for our views now. Steve's Steve's got a five-man raid he needs to get to. You know, you guys are going to stop me at any f***ing time. Oh, no, (laughs) why would we do that? It's your podcast. You've got the script. Yeah. (laughs) Sons of bitches. I'm trying to stop laughing so I can start talking normally again.